Um, lots in there. We won't be able to cover everything, but hopefully enough to see, actually, this is a, a wonderful chapter about our great God. Let's pray for his help as we begin. We've just sung, Speak, O Lord, and we pray that would indeed happen now, Lord, as we've read your word, but also as we come to hear it explained. Particularly with this passage, help us to understand this complex imagery that is before us, this vision. Uh, And may we see, perhaps, you, your Son, your Spirit, in a light that we perhaps haven't seen before. May we marvel at your glory And may it help us to think about our own lives. May it shape us and change us more into the likeness of Jesus. So help us, we pray, as we come to your word now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where is God? Where is God? Uh, We don't typically ask that question when life is going well. But when the floor disappears beneath us, or we hit rock bottom, when everything we take for granted is called into question, the first question we so often ask is, where is God? Uh, The answer we fear, perhaps the answer our circumstances might suggest, is that God has deserted us. He wants nothing to do with us. And we might respond in anger, thinking God is not being fair. We might be in denial that anything is wrong in the first place. And we might despair that things could ever change. Perhaps we even waver between all three of these responses. Well, this was the situation facing Ezekiel and his fellow Jews. Their world had been upended by exile to Babylon. Where was God? Has he deserted us? Now, if we're not too familiar with the Babylonian captivity, it's worth us touching on it briefly because it will help us with some context You see, the struggle between Judah and Babylon was long and and ultimately disastrous for God's people. Uh, During the reign of King Jehoiakim, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded and Jehoiakim was forced into servitude for three years. Uh, This began in the year of 605 BC. Uh, Three years later, Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon, refusing to pay the tribute And Nebuchadnezzar quelled the rebellion and took prisoners back to Babylon. And this included Daniel and his three friends. Now, after Jehoiakim's death in 597 BC, his 18-year-old son Jehoiachin became king, reigning for three months. And that same year, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem and Jehoiachin surrendered. And the king of Babylon took the treasures and the vessels from the temple, along with 10,000 captives. And among this second deportation was Ezekiel. 
Now, as we come to chapter 1, we meet Ezekiel five years after this event. So let me read from verse 1. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the river Kiba, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of the king Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the river Kiba, in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. So at, the time, at this time, Ezekiel is 30 years old. And as a priest, he would have been eligible to enter into the sort of holy service and, and sacred duty of the temple. Uh, but Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. He's far away in an unholy and foreign land. And he's living amongst his fellow exiles. Perhaps he thought, just like many of the other Jews did, where is God? Has he deserted us? Well, our theme this morning is the theme of glory. And Ezekiel 1 is one of the most amazing depictions of glory, the glory of God in the entire Bible. It is full of strange and potentially confusing symbols. And Ezekiel receives this vision one summer's day by the canal's edge of the river Kiba. And it forms the foundation of his call and commission in chapters 2 and three, as the Lord's prophet to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel summarized what he sees at the end of the chapter in verse 28. He sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now he sees what can be best described as God riding his royal throne chariot. Now, the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, if I pronounce that properly, probably not. But it means uh, heavy or significant. And biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance or manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. And these images in Ezekiel's vision are like some of the events of the Exodus, So think of the Lord's appearance at Mount Sinai or the depiction of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. But perhaps what is most shocking about this that we have here in this vision is the question, what is God's glory doing in Babylon? What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant. That's what the Jews thought, above the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, if we were to read on Ezekiel, the first section of the book explores that question as Ezekiel comes to, with his ministry, comes to accuse Israel of rebellion and breaking the covenants with God. Uh, They worshipped other gods, allowed uh, social injustices, and they practiced violence. Now, they may well ask, where is God But God appoints Ezekiel to proclaim that he is near. You are still under judgment, 
Another attack is coming. Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. Now this glorious vision, it spurs Ezekiel on in that ministry, reminding him that the Lord is sovereign, and his sovereign rule goes far beyond the walls of the temple or Jerusalem. Now, to give us uh, an idea of what Ezekiel saw, uh, here's a sort of interpretation I found on the internet of this vision. It's a bit pretty psychedelic, isn't it? Now, it, it's worth noting as, as we, we begin that most of the chapter is what we call apocalyptic literature. Uh, this simply means that it's picture language. Uh, you may have noticed we, we read that the word like is used many times. It's like, it's like, it's something like that comes time and again. And so what Ezekiel was doing, he's trying to describe the unfamiliar, the unknown, if you like, with familiar language, something that we can understand. And so we don't kind of take this vision at, at face value. You know, the Lord is not flying around on a heavenly chariot, like perhaps the Greek mythology of Apollo. No, the imagery speaks the truth of the character and purpose of God. Now, as this vision is really just one image, I've tried to summarize this with one point or heading, which is this. It will come up on the screen. The glory of the Lord reveals that the Lord who judges is ever-present, ever-active, ever-seeing, and ever-reigning. The glory of the Lord reveals that the Lord who judges is ever-present, ever-active, ever-seeing, and ever-reigning. So we're going to unpack that now. So do uh, look with me at verse one. Uh, sorry, at verse four. I looked and I saw a violent storm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looks like glowing metal. Uh, one of the most impressive storms I think I've ever seen uh, was actually it, it, when I was living in Eastbourne. You might not think that that would produce such a big storm, but it was a. It was a few about 2019 or so. There's a bit of an electrical storm. It might have got in the news. I can't remember. But it was amazing just to see how the lightning just was so constant. It was. A, it was a, like a light show. It was. It was incredible uh, to see. It certainly kept me me up at night. Um, now, as impressive as as that was, and perhaps you can think of something for yourself, uh, something you've witnessed. I don't expect it comes even close to what Ezekiel saw. This violent windstorm was both immense and radiant. And coming from the north, it was a signal of disaster. You see, in the Bible, the north is often associated with God's judgment through Israel's powerful enemies. Uh, one commentator writes this. He says, It was significant that this vision of God and the living creatures came from the direction of captivity and conquest imposed upon Israel, it was a way of saying that those calamities were from God. You see, the Lord is a God who 
judges. And just as this glorious cloud revealed that the exile was, was from God's judgment, his appearance in Babylon shows his judgment is far-reaching. And this is because the Lord is ever-present. The Lord is not contained behind a temple curtain or city walls or a kingdom's border or boundary. He is above such things. Being ever-present means he is everywhere. A word we use to describe this attribute is omnipresence. The Lord is all-present. Now, this doesn't mean that he is totally immersed in the fabric of creation. That's sort of a pantheism view, a wrong view. He's distinct from his creation, but he is ever-present over it. Now, that meant for the Jews that his judgment was upon them, whether they were in Judah or Babylon. And this is true for us, too. Because the Lord is ever-present, there is nowhere out of his reach. Now, this is both wonderful and also quite terrifying. Wonderful because the Lord's justice covers all, but terrifying if you're the one facing it. Now, perhaps the most bizarre aspect of this vision are these four living creatures that emerge first from the cloud. Uh, Read with me from verse 5. In the fire was what looked like four living creatures in appearance their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Now, these creatures are angelic beings, burning with fiery zeal for the Lord. They are, in fact, what we call cherubim. Now, Ezekiel only realizes this by his second vision, and you can see that in chapter 10. Now, cherubim are guardians and bearers of the things of God. And perhaps most famously is the cherubim that is guarding the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you were to ask someone to draw a cherub, uh, I suspect you'd probably get a picture of a baby with wings, wouldn't you? Uh, Maybe holding a harp, something like that. Um, I'm not sure why artists from the past uh, depicted these sort of angelic beings this way. It seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Uh, Now, as cute as babies are, uh, the description we have here of the cherubim here in Ezekiel is far more interesting and impressive But of course, it is just picture language. But the imagery helps reinforce the point that the Lord who judges is ever-present, ever-active, ever-seeing, and ever-reigning. Now, the first thing to note about uh, these creatures is that there are four of them. Now, with apocalyptic literature, uh, numbers uh, matter. They symbolize something. Uh, So we can take the number seven, for example, which is perhaps what we would say is a a number that describes perfection or wholeness. Or we could look at uh, the number 12, which relates to to God's people, 12 tribes and 12 apostles. Here, the number of the day, to kind of phrase from Sesame Street, uh, is the number four. 
It's what we might call a geographical number. Uh, like the direction of a compass or the four corners of the earth. Now in verse 10 we're told that each cherubim also has four faces. They have a face of an, a human, a lion, an ox and an eagle. Now, much has been um, speculated about the significance here. Some very odd things have been um, suggested. But at the very least, they represent the most majestic creatures in their respective realms. But these cherubim also have four wings. We see that at the end of verse 8. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. And what that's saying is, is that two of their wings were outstretched to sort of form what's like a, a square-like perimeter, a four-sided shape. And, and this is very much like the, the cherubim described in the most holy place in God's temple. But along with these sort of four angelic beings also comes a, a wheel. Uh, think of it a little bit like a, a gyroscope, a wheel within a wheel. But that inner wheel is at a sort of 90 degrees angle from the other. And of course, these wheels signify movement. So if we put all this imagery together, uh, this repeated value of the number four, then I think it reinforces the truth that God is ever-present over his creation. His presence and reach are to the very ends of the earth. But the, this imagery says so much more. I, I think the hardest part of the passage is, is understanding the sort of movement of the vision described from verses 12 to 18. Let's read from verse 12. Now, each one went straight ahead wherever the spirit would go. They would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures were like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. Uh, the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. You see, this multidirectional movement explains that the Lord who judges is active. The Lord who judges is active. This supernatural mobility enables the creatures to move straight ahead in any direction. And all the sort of fire moving back and forth, the creatures sort of speeding with flashes of lightning, it made me think of the superhero Flash, if, you, if you've ever seen that character, who sort of, when he's at high speed, he sort of generates this sort of fiery electricity that crackles all around him. Now, I mean, whether that's remotely similar, who knows? But it's what initially came to, to mind. But of course, I'm sure that what Ezekiel saw was far more spectacular than any CGI on the big screen. But the point of the imagery is this. The Lord who judges is ever active. Now, verse 12 is a, a disputed verse. It's hard to know if it refers to the spirit of the cherubim or the Holy Spirit. If it's the former, it means there's, there's no conflict 
between the body and the spirit of these beings. Their body does exactly what their spirit desires. Now, if it's the latter, then they are perfectly responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They don't turn, but go straight ahead. Now, either way we look at this, the idea is that as one entity, this royal chariot, this royal throne chariot moves as one. There are no deviations. The angels are aligned with God's will and are under his will. They move forward together to fulfill God's good purposes. And this image is further reinforced with these ornate gyroscopic wheels. They serve as the base of this royal throne chariot. And they are in sync with the angels as they move, as they do. And all this is showing us that the Lord who judges is active. Now this was truly important for the exiles to know. Just because they were in captivity and far from home, it didn't mean that God had stopped. See, they might ask, where is God? But just because they couldn't see him or were were facing a desperate time or situation, it didn't mean that God had packed up his things and left and stopped. He is always active. The grave news for the Jews, though, was that activity meant future judgment. But I think it's a reminder for us too. When we say, where is God? Remember that just because we cannot see him, or we go through desperate times, it doesn't mean he's not at work. He's ever active and bringing about his good purposes. And that might be a comfort or a challenge to us, depending on what we're going through at the moment. Now, tied to this is the truth that the Lord who judges is ever seeing. And we're told in verse 18 that these wheels have many eyes all around. A bit of an odd image to think about. But if we couple this with the cherubim who have four faces in each direction, in all directions, then it paints the picture that God is ever seeing. He's omniscient, all seeing, all knowing, infinite awareness and knowledge. Now, this goes beyond just being present to searching the very depths of our hearts and souls. And as the Lord looked upon the exiles, he saw a people who were unfaithful, stubborn, and rebellious. So his judgment was right and good to fall on his people. It was justice. Uh, At Christmas, uh, my four nephews were playing hide-and-seek in the house. Uh, The youngest, who's only four... Uh, thought it was a good, a good hiding place would be to crouch down in the middle of the lounge floor with a blanket over him. Uh, we had to break it to him that he would probably get found pretty quickly, 
and convinced him to hide behind the sofa, between the sort of gap between the sofa and the patio door. Now, he, he was still found, uh, but it was a much better hiding place than his original plan. Now, we, we might think we know the best hiding place to get away, to escape. We might think we can keep hidden things that one will, no one will ever know. But we cannot hide from God. We cannot keep things hidden from God. Before him, we are laid bare. This is perhaps a, a sobering reminder to us of certain sins we have tried to hide or committed in private. We must remember that the Lord who judges is ever seeing. Well, the last thing I want us to see from this vision is that the Lord who judges is ever reigning. The Lord who judges is ever reigning. Read with me from verse 26. Above the vault over their heads was what looks like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he, he, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Now here we have the pinnacle of this heavenly chariot. Held up by these four cherubim was a great vault, an expanse of, of splendid crystal glass. Now we don't know how big this was, but I can imagine this was a vision uh, kind of vast beyond even Ezekiel's eyes. Now atop this great vault rests a great throne made of lapis. I'm not going to try and pronounce the other word because I got that completely wrong. But this was a, a, a metamorphic rock with that vivid royal blue colour. Now high above, seated on the throne, was a figure like a man, glowing, fiery, radiant in appearance. Now this description suggests that Ezekiel did not see a, a face and a body that he could, have, he could have drawn. But rather a sort of a fiery brightness that had a human shape that he knew to be living and personal. And this was the Lord who sits enthroned in the heavens. His fiery appearance resonates with all this burning and white-hot vision It speaks of the Lord who judges. Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24 says this. God speaking to his people. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You see, as king of heaven, the Lord's rule is over 
everything. It reaches to the ends of the earth. And so it doesn't matter if it's Judah, Babylon, or Banstead. He is sovereign and ever-reigning. That means that everyone comes under his jurisdiction. Every Jew, every Muslim, every Hindu, every Buddhist, every Sikh, every Satanist, every agnostic, every atheist, even every Christian comes under his rule and judgment. No one is exempt. No one is apart from his authority. The Lord who judges is ever reigning. And such is this awesome heaviness, this majestic glory of the Lord. All Ezekiel can do is fall face down. A humbling and right response to such a splendid and radiant vision. And it really should be our response too. Now we may not have seen this vision firsthand like Ezekiel, but there is more than enough here, more than enough of God's awesome, glorious character that it should bring us to our knees. And just think, when we sinned, the Lord was present before us. When we sinned, the Lord was active in his good purposes. When we sinned, the Lord saw the very thoughts of our hearts and souls. When we sinned, he still reigns over us. When we re reflect on this, we should rightly fall to our knees. We should fall face down. Uh, now many understand this fiery figure on the throne to be King Jesus. And I, I think that's right. But such an appearance could only illuminate. It could never redeem. For redemption, full incarnation was necessary. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ took on flesh... And through his ministry, he revealed the awesome glory of God. As the Apostle John said in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, John would later have his own vision. A vision where he too saw the glory of the Lord. And just like Ezekiel, John falls face down. But wonderfully, Jesus comes to him, rests a hand on his shoulder, and speaks these words of comfort. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. See, when we go through uncertain or difficult times, we might ask the question, where is God? Has he deserted us? 
Well, the answer to that is a resounding no. Christ is ever-present, ever-active, ever-seeing, and ever-reigning over his church and over everything. He has won the victory over death and holds life in his hand. And we can be comforted, just as John was, that the faithful follower will one day come into Christ's eternal glory and be with him forever. Let me close in prayer. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you for this most marvellous, splendid and awesome display of your glory. May we reflect rightly on what we have heard. Father, we pray particularly that you would help us with the things that we might be going through and remind ourselves that you are the Lord who judges, that you are present that you are active, that you are seeing, and that you are reigning. May that help us to live as we should, for your glory's sake. Amen.